invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 103, Psalm 103. It's also printed in your worship guide, both in our responsive reading and in the back. And we're going to pick up reading where our responsive reading let off, or pick up at that last verse in verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works and all the places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Pray with me. Our Father, we ask that you would come and you would bless us with your presence. Spirit, you're welcome in this place to bring all honor and glory to Jesus. I pray you would open up our hearts and our minds to receive what you have for us. And I pray in this moment our hope would be fixed firmly on you. Your word says that those who hope in you will not be disappointed. God, and in this moment, I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. I start this message with just a little bit of a warning. My, my brain's not firing on all cylinders right now. Uh, we've had sick children this week uh, for the last few days, which means we haven't really slept. Um, And so I'm having a hard time even forming thoughts. I actually woke up this morning just laying down on the floor in our living room. No blanket, anything. Just woke up on the floor, drool on the hardwood right there. Um, Wednesday night was especially brutal. Uh, It kind of felt like a dream. Uh, Right after home group left our house, Georgia started coughing. And she would not stop. She kept coughing and coughing and coughing. And the poor girl could not go to sleep. Uh, So, of course, we gave her medicine. Medicine didn't work. Uh, I crunched up cough drops and I gave them to her. That didn't work. Uh, We... uh, we tried sleeping her with her, you know, sitting up, holding her in a chair. Uh, that would not work. Um, we gave her ice cream at about midnight. Um, that would not work. Ice cream with honey did not work. We thought we'd put on a movie. Maybe if we could just distract her, she would fall asleep. It just made her angry because she wanted to be in her bed. Um, so around 1 o'clock, we, we didn't know what to do. We'd now gone about four or five hours of straight coughing. So uh, I just picked her up and I got her in the car. I was like, we're driving. Maybe if we drive, she'll fall asleep. And we're driving around and it worked in putting me to sleep. I was getting really tired. So I went to Taco Bell. 
Uh, I got me a couple of uh, steak um, tacos and a Coke, figuring that would keep me awake um, in multiple ways. Uh, and, and so I kept driving, and she would not go to sleep. She kept coughing. I drove all the way to the Galleria from my house. It's about 3 in the morning now at the Galleria parking lot. And I'm completely exhausted, and I'm like, I've got to get back home. I get back home, and she is finally, we're about a mile from her house, and she falls asleep. And I was like, thank you, Lord. And I go over the train tracks, and it wakes her up, and she starts coughing. And so I pull into our back parking pad, and she's still coughing. I was like, I just, maybe she'll go back to sleep. And so we sat there for about 15 minutes with the car cranked just in the back parking pad, just saying, please go to sleep. And she would not. And so we went inside and, you know, uh, finally I just put her in bed and Lauren, of course, is up now and uh, we, she just kept coughing. And I always, or Natalie said at this moment, Natalie sleeps in a bed right above her, typical Natalie, sure sounds like there's a lot of coughing going on down there. Uh, and then finally, I, I could no longer distinguish between dream and reality, and I just lost consciousness. Uh, took her to the doctor the next morning. They gave her lots of drugs, said it would make her grumpy, but would make her go to sleep. And we're like, we'll take it. And it, it succeeded on one of those options, one of those. She became very grumpy, so grumpy, Lauren just told me she got some of Caroline's figurines and just started breaking off the heads of them. Uh, and so it's, it's been this tiring miserable past few days, um, which has helped me understand this psalm a lot. Uh, it's actually given me some glasses in which I, I, I've read this psalm in ways I've never read this psalm before, possible hallucinations or possible insight. Uh, this psalm is one of the most glorious psalms in the Bible. Um, it seems like every verse in there is either a song or a memory verse, you know, that you had at VBS. I can still remember the, uh, the uh, macaroni dried noodles on colored paper, the Bible verse that I made on verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This song, psalm is it's about the loving kindness and compassion and mercy and forgiveness of the Lord, but it's not a theological discourse. King David, as he wrote this, is not interested in helping you just understand the theology or the mechanics of forgiveness. He wants you to feel it. He wants you to exult in your forgiveness and in the loving kindness of the Lord. And so over and over again, he says, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. The psalm begins with, bless the Lord, O my soul. The psalm ends with, bless the Lord, O my soul. And all of the psalm in between is about that. Reasons we should be blessing the Lord. Verse 2 says to bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then it lists all of these benefits. Um, possibly the greatest benefit is in verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Just let that sink in. As a father shows, so the Lord shows. We relate to the Lord like a child to his father. Jesus, of course, taught this when he taught his disciples to pray. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he said, okay, when you pray, pray this, our 
Father. That's how you start your prayer, is you call God your Father. And Jesus didn't tell them, all right, this is how you pray, address God as Lord of the universe, or Almighty God, or Creator. He said, no, no, address Him as your Father. Now, when Jesus said this, and when King David writes this, they're not saying that Jesus is not those other things, that, that God is not Almighty God. He's not Creator. He's not Lord of the universe. He's not saying that they are not those things. He is not those things. But what he's saying is that you need to see him as that through the lens of he is your Father. He's your Father who is Lord of the universe. He is your Father who is your Creator. And this drastically changes how we relate to him. And remember, God's not, God's not in heaven, you know, kind of looking down at fathers going, ooh, man, that's, I, sh- I should use that as a metaphor. You know, now that I'm seeing how the whole father-son thing plays, I should really use that to describe my love. That, that's not how God works. God created the family. God created fathers in order to teach something about himself to us. Remember, God is always existed as Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so he, is, he was Father way before He was ever Creator. And so when He did create, He said, how can I create something to show who I am? I will create the family. I will create fathers to point to me. And so He created Adam to become a father in order to teach Adam about himself. You see, a child has access and privileges to his father that are hard to fathom. Um, I would not have gone through all that I went through the last few nights if it was anyone else other than my child. If Jeff, Dwight were to call me up midnight, for one, I wouldn't answer. (sighs) Two, if they kept calling and I answered and they said, hey, I got a great plan, let's go to Taco Bell, they're still open. There, there's, there's no way I would have gotten out of bed to go to Taco Bell with them. Uh, no matter how much I like them. Uh, even if Lauren, my wife, who uh, we, we were celebrating 16 years this past week, celebrated by, by not sleeping. But my wife, if she got into a coughing fit, I would probably just leave the room. Sweetly just say, you know, darling, I, I really, I, I need some sleep. And so I'm not mad. I'm just going to, to leave the room. Um, I, I would not go to Taco Bell for her. Confession. But a father has compassion on his children. Does things for them he would do to no other person. Gives them access in which no other person would have that access. And that's why we relate to God as our Father. He, he didn't say, you know, say, pray our boss, you know, our neighbor or our judge. You know, for, one, for one reason is he is those things. He's our boss and he's close to us and, and he, is, he is our judge. But all of those relationships are based on performance. You fail your boss, you get fired. You break the law, you get thrown in prison. But Jesus, or God, wanted to communicate a relationship here that is not based on any performance. He loves us and he has compassion on us like a father does to their child. 
There's a famous photo. Um, most people here have probably seen it. 1963 of John F. Kennedy Jr. playing underneath his father's desk. It's, uh, you could Google it. It's a really cool image of that. He's, he's just kind of poking out this little trap door, side door that comes out of the desk as a little kid. And you think, this is the Oval Office. This is the most powerful office in all of the world. And there is a child playing underneath the desk. Um, I can't just knock on the White House door and go in there and, you know, go into the Oval Office. You can't either. Even the most powerful and the most privileged, privileged have the most rare access. And even if they come in there, they have to follow a certain protocol. They probably have to sit down. They probably have to be searched for weapons, whatever it is. But there's a child who can just run by the security guards and just run up to their father. Even though he's the most powerful person. And it's not that to little JFK Jr., his dad isn't the president. He is the president. He is the most powerful person in the world. But he sees that through the lens of, he's my father. And I have access where others do not. And so he freely goes. This is how we relate to God. He's all of those other things, creator, Lord, judge of all the earth. But we see him as those things through the lens of Father. Let me tell you, no other religion says this. There are other religions who might talk about a God and a Father in a general sense, like he's just our general creator, but not like this. Not a dad-child relationship. And when we view God as this, this affects everything. And we see this as we go through the psalm. Look at, look at verse 8 through 14 again. It says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As the father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Parents get angry with their children. I've heard. But the times that I've gotten angry with my children, uh, I can't hold on to my anger. I can't keep it. As a matter of fact, some of the things that my children do to tick me off, to make me angry, are actually the very things that draw me into a deeper love for them. Um, for instance, if one of my child says something really nasty to another child, I get angry. I get really angry that they would say that. However, when, I'm, when I see this, because I am her father, and I see the wickedness in my own child coming out, it makes me hurt. When I see that, I hurt for her. I want her to change so desperately. Now, this is, this is different. You know, if, if your child says something ugly to my child, it's a black and white issue. Your child is just evil. You know, and, and I just, I'm like, you're just evil. And I don't have any empathy. 
I don't have like any, I got to change this person. I don't hurt for your child. But my child, when she does something nasty, I hurt for them. My heart goes out for them. I want them to, so desperately to change. I want to, like, don't you know there's no joy in that? You're destroying your life like that. And so actually our sins, the very things that provoke God's anger, also produces this love in him towards us because he relates to us like a father to their child. Yesterday, Georgia said that I was mean to her. I was mean. I'm like, mean to her? Like, you, know, you know what the last three days, all the sacrifices that we've done? I wanted to be like, you haven't seen mean. That's what I wanted to say. And I was angry for a moment. I couldn't hold on to it because she was my child. And when my child does sin, I'm going to punish her. But not as a judge. I'm going to punish my child as a father. And there is a huge difference. A father, and this is a good father here. A good father will never punish his child in order to get justice. That's not why you punish. So if my child hits me, I don't hit her back and say, huh, how does that feel? I don't do tit for tat. You hit me, I hit you. It's not retribution. It's not revenge. It's not justice. You get what you deserve. I don't do that. A good father doesn't do that. Because I'm not out for justice. I'm out for correction. And so, yes, I will punish. Yes, I will bring pain in. But its purpose is is not retribution. It's to change her. And that's how a father deals with a child. A father will not repay his child according to her sins. Okay? Doesn't say, you sinned against me this way, and now I'm going to repay you according to your iniquity. A father does not do that. David, um, King David, knew this, of course, because, I mean, he sinned big time. He, he killed a man, took his wife. And so God called him out on it. God sent Nathan the prophet. Um, the great, great line. Nathan just goes up to him and says, you the man. You're the one who sinned. And, and David says, you're right. I did it. I, I sinned. And it's just, it's so puzzling. Right afterwards, Nathan goes, well, the Lord has removed your sin. Just like that, you're forgiven. But then he punishes David. But it's not retribution. He corrects David. This, this, this punishment is a discipline to bring his child close back to him again. David got it. He understood that. That's why he's writing this. God wasn't trying to even the score in his punishment. Verse 12 is that God throws our sins as far as the east is from the west. It's a great image of um, just an immeasurable distance. There, there's no measurable distance between the east and the west. And the psalmist is saying that is how immeasurable God's love, his compassion, and his forgiveness is towards us. And then he goes to verse 13 and he uses the image of a father and a child to show another immeasurable distance. This time it's immeasurable int- intimacy. Immeasurable acceptance. 
You can't measure it. You're that accepted and that loved. And every commentator is going to tell you that that word for compassion is somewhat of a shocking term when you come up because it is packed full of emotion. You could translate it as, so the Lord's heart goes out to those who fear Him. We, we, we're pulling at His heartstrings. Then we get to verse 14. For He knows our frame and He remembers that we are dust. That word knows there is a very intimate term means that He is intimately acquainted with us. And then you have that word frame. Um, and this verse likely means this. Um, he knows our frailty. He knows that we're just human. But it also means a little bit more. Because King David uses an unusual word there that's that's used in Genesis 8, that's translated intention. In Genesis 8, God is telling Moses, is right, or Noah's right after the flood, and he says that the intention of man's heart is from, on evil from his youth. The intention of man's heart is on evil from his youth. Man is totally depraved and full of sin. The same word there, for he knows our intentions. He knows our frames. And then God looks at it and he knows our utter wickedness and sinfulness, which led us to death, which leads us to the dust. Aren't you far or glad that our sins are thrown so far from the east is from the west? Now, as I read through these things, there, there is a temptation for me and thinking about fatherhood, there's a temptation for me to try to raise up my children or even relate to my wife this way and to try to be this rock. I'm, I'm going to be the rock, all right? Y'all can lean on me. You could trust on me. You could pile it on me, and I will not let you down. I will carry you. But the reality is, one day I won't, and I will fail. Just like the grass, just like the flower mentioned in verse 15. One day I will die. And I love it. I have um, these minister manuals. I don't know if you knew such things existed. There's these manuals that were given as ministers. And uh, when you're doing funerals, uh, there's a huge difference between old minister manuals and the newer minister manuals. Uh, the newer minister manuals, kind of like our culture, doesn't like to use the word died or death. I mean, even at a funeral, you don't use, you kind of avoid those words when you can. Um, and you focus on other things, focus on the life of the person who died, you celebrate that. That's somewhat of a new kind of way we do funerals. You look at the old funerals, the old minister's manuals, and not at all. You, you, it says, now minister, look into the grave and point into it. For everybody. And remind everyone of their fate. How the grave awaits everyone. Remind people of their own mortality. Have people look back at their life and ask, is, is this what they want to be doing? Is this a life pleasing to God? 
Ask them to think about all the vain things that they are pursuing, all the anxieties they have, and how it doesn't make a difference. Because one day, this awaits everyone. That's the old funerals. So they, they, they've kind of changed those. But the psalmist is old school here. He's old school. It's like, hey, flowers die. The grass dies. And the reality is my wife is either going to bury me or I will bury her. And if I try to place my kids' trust on me or my wife's trust on me, it will fail. And that's why we go to verse 17. It's one of those great buts. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. I need to point my children, my wife, towards the Lord because it's everlasting, that relationship. Now, there's a question as we're going through this psalm that kind of keeps popping up. At least it popped up as I'm, I'm reading through it. And that's simply this. How is all of this possible? As you, I mean, the, forgetting out all of his benefits. There's a lot of benefits. But how are these benefits possible? How can he forgive all of our iniquity? How can he redeem our life from the pit? How can he remove our sins as far as the east is from the west? How can God do all of these things? How is it that we can call him Father? And the answer, of course, is the cross. It's the cross. It's the co- I mean, here it says, to those, verse 18, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. And of course, we, we remember the night when Jesus was betrayed when he took a cup and he said this is the cup of the new covenant which is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sinners sinners for, for, I totally can't even concentrate poured out for the forgiveness of sins it's not based on your performance you relate to God as a father as a child why because it's based on my performance and my sacrifice and we have talked about this so many times here at Redeemer, but when you look at the cross and Jesus cries out from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the only time we have that Jesus ever calls his Father God and not Father. It's the only time, and it's there on the cross. And it's because in that moment, Jesus no longer felt the intimacy of a father and a child. He no longer felt his sonship. He never felt that immeasurable closeness anymore. All he felt was the distance. And he couldn't call God his father at this point. Just my God, my God. He felt utterly forsaken. So he, he, he knew this immeasurable forsakenness so that we can have this immeasurable acceptance. He didn't feel like he could be called son so that we could be called sons. And daughters. This is why King David can have his sin removed. When Nathan could go up to him after he commits murder and he commits adultery and Nathan just goes, the Lord has removed your sins. Just like that. The Lord has removed your sins. Like, does God just kind of like lift up some cosmic rug and, you know, sweep sins under it and like, it's all gone? No. The sins had to go somewhere and they went to the cross. And that's how David could be forgiven and restored. 
Now, I love how this psalm ends. Verse 20. Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of the Lord. Bless the Lord, all His host, His ministers who do His will. Bless the Lord, all His works and all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. You have kind of this escalation. that The psalmist is saying, hey, in light of everything we've heard, look, everybody is blessing the Lord in light of who He is. All of the angels, everyone who does His biddings, all of creation, all of His dominion, what are you going to do? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Join in with what the rest of all creation is doing in light of who the Lord is. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Pray with me. Our Father, God, I pray we would not so casually say those words anymore. Those words were purchased for us at a great price. The blood of your Son. And I pray that we would come to understand and realize just full, the full measure of what that means. Spirit, I pray in this moment you would make that so. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.